Welcome to the 34th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about modern file systems, in particular ones that support verification of data, copy and write cloning, and other advanced feature sets. So, Brendan, I hear you use file systems in your day-to-day work. Yes, Jack, so do you. We don't happen to store anything, do we? No, I, I don't store logs, and you don't store metrics. No one knows I store metrics. Really? Yeah, today we're talking about modern file systems on Unix Linux platforms. We should start probably by talking about uh, giving a basic history of what we consider modern and what's not modern in the history of the file system. What's not modern about file systems? Uh, if you don't know about the file allocation table-based file systems, FAT, FAT16, and FAT32, uh Go do a research paper on on FAT. That's an incredible way to learn some really valuable history about your machine and how file systems work, and really the the magic that keeps our stuff working yet today. Uh, if you have a USB stick, it's FAT formatted. If you have a very new computer that uses a UEFI boot system, there's a little FAT partition that is involved in the uh, boot process. So the FAT uh, file system is really very old of MS-DOS Your, but still lives with us today and is not going anywhere. I was, a, was, I was a Mac user growing up, so we didn't have the FAT stuff to deal with. We were occasionally translating it off of friends' floppy drives, but we were using HFS and HFS Plus, which had its own interesting lineage as a as the file system for the Mac. Um, HFS had lots of limitations and lots of strangenesses that a lot of other systems looked at askance and said, that's that's crazy, you can't do that. But Apple said, no, we're, we're doing this because it's better for our users, like having spaces and file names and full Unicode support, even though the denormalization of Unicode was a little special. Um, Unicode in file systems is just a little special anyway. Well, in particular... Apple stored the case of the files case sensitive, but didn't write them that way. So you couldn't have capital it was documents. Case preserving, but not case sensitive. Correct. And why they made that particular decision, I really don't understand, but whatever. That's ancient history at this point. They fixed a lot of the basic problems with it with HFS Plus, but it left a bunch of glaring issues. So, of course, if you're using any sort of Linux, you're familiar with the uh, extended family of file systems. Uh, I remember doing EXE2 file systems back in the day, and since then we've had EXE3 and EXE4, and they've they've added features to the extended file system, but not really made any advanced uh, significant progress with that file system. So there's lots of stuff that they've added to make the file system better and faster. But as far as a modern file system goes, it's it's not what, what I would consider modern. However, there's really nothing that beats it. It's been the default file system on just about every Linux distribution for decades. If you're looking for something that's fast, it's really very fast. XFS may edge it out in a couple different edge cases, but it beats the crap really out of modern file systems in terms of raw speed. It also has a very rich tool 
tool chain to it. So if you have data corruption issues or you're trying to do other things to the file system, it has a very, very healthy stable of tools which with you can work on the file system. It's great that way. Like the immutable flag. Who hasn't played games with the immutable flag? I was thinking more of FSCK and its friends, but yes. Well, true. Uh, working FSCK is always handy. And then the other kind of ancient but sort of modern file system I wanted to talk about tonight is NTFS on Windows, which is rare in the fact that it was started development, I think, it, the Windows 3.0 days. And it is phenomenal in terms of its future set for the time. It is stable or has been stable in terms of like power outages and, and su- sudden system halts. And Microsoft's been extending it over the years. It is, of course, a closed-source Microsoft file system. There is read-and-write support in most major systems now. Um, But it is really more flexible than people think it is. Um, It has volume shadow cloning. It has copy-and-write semantics and other pieces in it. But it isn't quite a modern file system because it has to support all the legacy baggage that it's brought with it. So what were the benefits to RiserFS? That was popular a number of years ago other than potential harm to your family members. Well, yes. Um, I I had a couple systems formatted with RiserFS, and it had a bunch of claims about using better using disks more efficiently and having more consistent write states, so you were able to make sure that things that were written to disk were actually written and not improperly flushed, if I remember correctly. But it, it had a very short peak of popularity. Um, Unfortunately, but yeah. Yeah, Hans Reiser, the, the lead developer of the file system, was convicted and tried and found guilty of murdering his wife. And rapidly after that happened, his company that was developing the file system shut down. And there is an open source community that still supports it, but it is not really considered a, a widely deployed or widely supported system at this point. And it's definitely not active. But that was one of the earlier file systems that started to bridge the gap between uh, things like the EXT2 and EXT4 and a modern file system that we have today. Yeah, things like or journals. Or like to have today. Yeah, journaling is a huge comp- component of the bridge to the modern file system. The The journal was basically a circular log that recorded the, in, the file system's intents of what you're going to do next so you could roll back to a stable point if the system was taken off in terms of power mid, in, mid-cycle and so it didn't complete its transaction you could easily roll back the journal to a safe to a safe point, and then say, "Okay, anything after this point, we're going to lose, but we're not losing the whole file system." But we have an intact file system that's safe. Yeah, and so it it gave a lot of stability and performance, especially in laptops and other devices that needed the ability that needed to, to power off power on suddenly, if, if um, unrecoverably. Apple added um, journaling to HFS Plus. But it kind of, again, it's a kludge. Um, HFS Plus is not my favorite file system, as you'll discover as we go through this. I never could have guessed. Other interesting things that came out in the past, I don't know, 10 years, or maybe a little more than that, XFS, the, I think it was the ERICS file system, had the ability to do quotas not only on how much data you were assigning to a user or a group, but it let you do I.O. quotas. And this was only on specific hardware from SGI. But it was pretty awesome. You could pre-allocate bandwidth and say, I want to make sure that this process gets this much disk I.O. and this other process gets this much disk I.O. and they don't, you know, stomp on each other. SGI had some cool hardware and some cool technology. They really did. I remember those little IREX boxes. They were pretty sweet. And sort of shaped like a bowling ball. The other sort of bridge to 
uh, from the old file systems to modern file systems is the way Linux attempted to take each part of the stack and separate it into its own component. So you had LVM to do logical volume management, uh, which then you had a file system inside of. However, the LVM might be on top of a software RAID setup. So you could have two or three different layers of block devices on a Linux system to attempt to give the aspects of a modern file system. With LVM, you could do things like snapshot a ext4 file system when it worked. It, it wasn't cheap or free, though. It was... It, it didn't always work. Um... But again, there had to be cooperation between the LVM layer and the file system layer. And uh, EXT 3 and 4, I think, had that. Uh, but not all file systems, definitely. So there's also there's lots of, of issues with the snapshotting layer there that more or less made that not really a production option. As we, Also, as we bridge into modern file systems, Part of the feature set that people became enamored with, with for modern file systems is better, more efficient use of space and ability to tell if there's data corruption. Um, data corruption has been with us as long as there's been computer science. And basically you have random bits of data. that data, either... data corruption has been with us as long as we've had data. Well, that is far better said, yes. <laughs> but it's basically, it's, it's, it's it's bits that have randomly gone from a zero to a one or, or the other way when they're not supposed to. You have this in memory all the time, your the RAM in your machine, you have this on your hard drives, you have this all over the place. Yeah, you and have this in memory, you have this in solid state devices that lose their charge, you have this in spinning rust when the um, bit of magnetically oriented data loses its orientation, you have this in in on optical media as well, so in every single method that we have to store data, eventually bit rot creeps in. For a long time, hard drives were rated at 10 to the 8th or 10 to the 10th bits of data for an unrecoverable read error. That is, an error that you can't retry it and get the data back out. And as drives have gotten bigger, the ratings for these things have gone up. For a while, it was 10 to the 14th bits. 10 to the 14th is, I want to say, 12 terabytes. Sounds right. And then modern enterprise level drives are now rated at 10 to the 15th. Um, Western, uh, Western Digital Red is 10 to the 15th, is less than 10 bit flips per 10 to the 15th bits read, mm-hmm. or less than 10 bit flips for every 120 terabytes, roughly. I, I love how hardware manufacturers always work in base 10. But um, as I mentioned earlier, I wouldn't happen to have a lot of metrics laying around. Brendan, you wouldn't happen to have a lot of logs laying around. Not at all. 120 terabytes, when you're talking about at-scale systems, is not a lot of data. Not anymore, unfortunately. It, I mean, it's still a sizable chunk, but it's not... I mean, it's not small, but those are not... Those are trivial values that I work with every day, more or less. The other so, trouble is that when you have, say, a 10 terabyte drive and you put 12 of them into a RAID array and you lose a drive and you have, to re- you have to read all the bits off of all the other drives, you'd think in a very academic sense that, hey, you'd, you'd hit your, your 12 terabytes, your 128 terabytes reading off of that, that kind of structure. But those are minimum reported rates, not 
sorry, those are maximum data errors in that much volume, not average or anything else. And drive manufacturers have no way of impl- independently validating that data. So it's really a best guess. More or less, yes. However, there are other places in the data path that your data can get corrupted. Um, if there's a memory, con- if there's memory on the RAID controller or on your hard drive controller, if there's memory anywhere else in the system, including your main system RAM, you are you are subject to random bit flips. And also, when drives start to fail, they start to send out bad data before they actually start to really fail. So having having a file system that's able to understand when the data that it's reading back to you is not the data that you gave it is really kind of awesome and important these days. It's not as important as some people make it out to be, but it's still very, very valid. For normal use cases, you programming on your laptop, you're never going to notice bit rot. But once you start dealing with enough data, and I think the important thing to realize about this is if you're working with data sets that are larger than 150 or 200 terabytes, you probably have bit rot somewhere. And it's not exactly easy to identify uh, unless you have a file system that, that will identify it. Yay, checksums. Yeah, so modern file systems, one of the most important things is checksums. Basically taking a hash of the data block on the disk and writing it into the header of the parent block usually. So you can ver- you can verify that the child block should have a, a checksum that matches this thing. And then you go check it. And of course the checksum for that thing is in its parent block and all the way up the tree. So you can walk from the top of the tree to the bottom of the tree and say, I want to verify every block of data on the disk. And you can run that checks- you can run the hash mechanism against the block you have and compare it with your checksum and then move forward. And that's called a scrub operation. Yes. Yeah, so th- this, of course, means that you're now ver- you're now relying on a checksum, which has to be done to be correct, and is can be CPU and memory intensive to compute. And is a drain on your I/O available to the system? Yes. But one of the things to keep in mind is with modern file systems, without the scrub operation, you can't guarantee data integrity. However, if you're if you're running a database on top of this file system and your DB engineers say, ah, don't do that, you're working at cross-purposes. You can't guarantee the, the database engineers have, have reliable data unless you can run scrubs on a regular basis. So your, your design system have to be designed in order or to take account the I.O. constraints of the scrub. Yes. If you're doing small office or medium enterprise, weekends are usually pretty low traffic. And so you can schedule scrubs for that kind of time period. But if you're running an online, a a primarily online or an app-driven company, you have to be able to be online all the time. And so this gets a lot trickier to schedule an IO intensive scrub. The downsides of a modern file system. Well, there's other things you get out of having these checksums. Um, you can do copy on write really, really easily because you have blocks you can reference the, the you have blocks you can reference the hash on, and so you can get almost no cost clones of file systems if you, if you do things correctly. You just basically point a new block at the tree and say, "We're good unless you need to copy something and then do a redirect on a redirect on write," and we can build a live editable snapshot of of anything at any point in time. And that's how LVM and I believe pretty much every technology that has implemented file system snapshots has has done it with a copy on write methodology of some form or factor. 
Um, checksumming also can give you deduplication of common data blocks. Um, there's a number of enterprise storage solutions that do this. Data domain was the first one, but I think EMC bought them and a couple of others that look for similar things and basically make com compress your data that way. Um, the one that I'm most familiar with is ZFSs, and I really cannot recommend it at all because it is extraordinarily expensive on memory. One analysis that was done is needing at least 25 gigs of RAM to hold a five terabyte file system. That is a file system with, ten, with five terabytes of available, or of used space, not five terabytes of available space. And that is still prohibitively expensive. Um, adding that much RAM to a, a running system, it's cheaper just to buy more hard drive capacity than it is to add RAM to enable duplication on the same hard drive capacity. But as far as modern file systems go, ZFS really is the shining star that we have. Oh, yes. ZFS was designed by Sun Microsystems. They, they had a lot of really awesome design goals in mind when they started it out. And they achieved a good number of them. Oh, yeah. And we, we mentioned some of them. The, the, the copy and write and the snapshots we've, we've talked about and block checksumming. They also had a very advanced both journaling log and intent log or journaling log and adaptive, adaptive replacement cache for file system caching that could be used independent of the data pool itself. So you could have a secondary drive, like a, a high-priced a high SSD as your file system journal. And then you could have other drives, say SSDs or high-performance spinning disks to do recently used recently used block lookup. So you anything that was accessed recently would then get moved into either RAM or onto a high-speed disk cache. And it happened transparently to the user. So you just use the system and it kind of self-optimized for recently used stuff. So SSD performance on a spinning rust right away. Exactly. That's pretty cool. And in 2006, 2007, when this was first really released to the public, that was huge because SSDs were prohibitively expensive at the time. Yep. And Sun put out a, a host code named the Thumper that had 48 drive bays in it and no RAID controllers. So it was 48, either 250, 500, one terabyte... 250 or 500 gig or one terabyte or two terabyte drives. So you could get 96 terabytes in four U of rack space, which in 2007 was unheard of. And of course, all protected by ZFS's checksumming stuff. That was pretty awesome. I remember those. There are some interesting limitations of ZFS because um, it was designed by Sun for enterprise workloads primarily. There is no ability to shrink a storage pool. You can't take disks out at all, ever. So if you need to shrink a pool, you have to build a new pool and copy your data over to it, which you is... You can't redesign, restructure an existing storage pool in any way. Well, you can add capacity. You could say yes. you could take a, what they what they called a tank at the time. I'm not sure. I think it's a storage pool now. And you could add a RAID set to the existing RAID set and future data would be striped over those two RAID sets. You could add a third RAID set or a 10th RAID set or however many you wanted to stick onto it. You could add more storage to the pool. But you couldn't you, take a, a six-disc RAID 5 and turn it into a seven-disc RAID 5. You had to create a new... Or RAID 10. Yeah, you can't, you can't do that conversion at all. And You can add a mirror to a Stripe uh, ZFS pool. Yeah. But that's about, that's about the only logical change of the Z pool that you can do. Yeah. And that's very frustrating because a lot of people who I've talked to want to use it want to use it on smaller systems or at home, and or on you know two disk systems that are holding mail, and the inability to be flexible later as you grow an environment can be really frustrating. 
And that's one of the design considerations uh, taken in uh, with BTRFS. Which one's BTRFS? ButterFS or BetterFS or... I just say BTRFS. That was the one that was started about the same time as ZFS, right? That was started by Oracle... Yeah, in the the mid two uh, thousands. What were their design goals again? What were their original pitch on that? And their design goals were much like ZFS, uh, although ZFS is older, um, but to be a Linux native file system, so GPL and in kernel developed, um, and patent free. Uh, if you've paid attention to the legal battle surrounding uh, ZFS and Sun. Uh, you know that Netflix is, oh man, NetApp, NetApp has has settled for an undisclosed amount uh, with Sun's purchaser, Oracle, which also puts us in the weird position that Oracle now owns or has a develop, main development for both ZFS and BTRFS. That's not weird. One of the things that I know about BTRFS that I really and dearly love is that you can live convert an EXT4 volume to BTRFS and back without any kind of changing of your data or munging of your data. That was a total design requirement in the way they wanted to build that file system. The file system was designed much more for uh, folks running Linux workstations at home or doing small setups at home. So you can convert, try things out, and if it doesn't work, you can convert back or or change your disk layout. And it's kind of important to say here that the most important thing about anybody who's writing file system code is that the code is as stable and as tested and as bulletproof as possible. Because when you have a when you have a, a bug in say Chrome and Chrome crashes, okay, you've lost the last little bit of your web browsing history. You've lost you, that email you've written. But when you have a bug at the driver level of either doing reads and writes to your disk, you either get bad data out and causes endless problems, or you write bad data in and you lose all of your data. So it's good that you're able to test the BTRFS DXT4 stuff heavily, and you can really pound on it, because this code is very critical to the health and stability of your system. People are really kind of amazingly antsy about a file system failure corrupting their data. I don't understand why. I just can't imagine. I just set replicas three on all my my production enterprise <laughs> stuff, and I just oh sorry. Um, but the the downsides to BTRFS are that it it has many different companies uh, contributing to it, but hasn't had as much uh, time and effort as has been put into ZFS. ZFS is much more mature. BTRFS still has several areas where they're cons- where they have features that are considered unstable. The RAID five and RAID six support is not considered stable, for example, and that's that's still kind of a big one. The RAID write hole still exists, which has been uh, solved a long time ago in ZFS. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, for folks playing along at home, the RAID write hole is a phenomenon where You've made a partial write to your RAID. Uh, This affects RAID 5, 6, and actually 1. But you've made a partial write, and say you lose power. You've written a handful of blocks to disk, 
but you're unable to determine once the system comes back up uh, which blocks are the correct blocks, the blocks written to your raid the, or the parity blocks, as they don't match. So you can't determine with confidence which data is incorrect, and you end up with with data loss. And there's expensive ways you can compensate for and fix this. You can have UPSs, you can have battery back caches, you can have all kinds of other other tricks, supercapacitors in your SSDs to help make sure that writes finish completely. But it's a problem that ZFS gets you around completely because ZFS knows categorically if the write is finished or not, and it's able to roll back if it's if it's screwed up. It's at this time that we like to remind you that RAID is not backup. Very much. RAID is not backup. Snapshots are not backups. But you know what you can do with BTRFS or ZFS and snapshots? You can create a binary dump of that snapshot and send that to an offsite server. You can create a binary difference between one snapshot and the next snapshot and send the differences as a binary dump to a remote offsite server. Um, rsync.net actually supports uh, as a backup solution just sending ZFS uh, binary blobs to the service and it recreates them on desk. And that is pretty awesome. There is one other kind of huge downside of ZFS that we should we should talk about, and that is the fact that Sun, because Sun was being Sun in the 2000s, released ZFS under the CDDL, which is a... It's not a free license. Non-GPL compatible license. Correct. It is an open source uh, license. But it's not free in... The full sense, and I'd have to go look up why, but our gentle reader can do that I as am well. not a lawyer, but mostly uh, it's incompatible with, with Linux, therefore cannot be part of the kernel or cannot be distributed, your definition of distributed, uh, with the kernel. So that's, that's definitely been some roadblocks for ZFS adoption in Linux land the last several years. And then Canonical surprised the... In- Everybody by announcing that their most recent release, which I can't pronounce, um, Zenial, yes, Zenial, that that sounds good, would support ZFS by default. It was going to be loaded onto the install images and everything else. That when you installed the OS, you got ZFS, and that was so, a yeah, huge it surprise works to the community. Out of the box, uh, they maintain a, the ZFS kernel module and ship it with their product. Uh, that definitely shocked a bunch of folks. The canonical folks have set their team of lawyers on this and have tried to figure out some of the gray areas. And they believe they've come to a legal stance saying that that they can legally distribute that software combination. Um, I'm sure there will be probably some challenges of that in in the future. Yes. Um, And part of the issue is the difference between a derivative work and a collaborative work or a concurrent work. There's a yes. There, there's a couple of different ways you can distribute code with a GPL and be GPL compatible. And one of the problems is that the CDDL does not support those. So you have to be careful legally in how you package the products. You you can't obviously compile ZFS into the Linux kernel. There's nobody questioning that. But it's how can you distribute it alongside without violating the letter of the license. 
Again, I am not a lawyer. Consult your own legal representation. The other uh, minor issue about ZFS on Linux that folks may be, want to be aware of to at least look for if they decide to do some ZFS work is the fact that ZFS doesn't use the Linux virtual file system layer like other Linux native file systems do. ZFS has its own caching layer, which they call the ARC, the Adaptive Read-Ahead Cache. Replacement. Is that the replacement adaptive, cache? Adaptive Replacement Cache. So close, so close. Um, but in certain situations, the ARC can really play unnice with the virtual file system layer. And the ARC can consume a rather large amount of memory that, unlike the VFS buffers, isn't instantly freeable when an application needs more memory. In the Solaris days, because obviously this was de- developed there, the ARC was limited yes. to half of system RAM. And still this. But of course, the Solaris kernel was able to free that when it needed it. So it, it wasn't fighting with the OS on it because they were developed kind of in harmony. Um, as it, as people have adapted ZFS to Linux, um, these differences in how the kernels operate is becoming pretty interesting. Yeah. And there's some performance uh, considerations there as well. Um, I know some folks that run ZFS on Illumos or other uh, yeah the other open Solaris stuff, which I really haven't gotten into, but that's a much more native operating system for ZFS, since ZFS was non Solaris to begin with. Yeah, so all I the... know of some incredible performance that folks have gotten out of ZFS on an open Solaris uh, distribution. So, Brendan, what are you actually using? So my file server at home uses ZFS. Both of, sorry, all three of my Macs have HFS Plus, unfortunately. And at work, I'm primarily using EXT4 on top of LSI RAID controllers, which makes me feel kind of dirty. But the stuff at work primarily is Elasticsearch. So I have effectively another whole copy of all the data somewhere. And we frequently test that reliability by having nodes either leave the cluster or whatever else happens. So I know that it's able to handle and check some and do stuff on at the application level. So I'm not as worried about the file system level for that. What are you doing these days, Jack? So at work, um, usually ext4 on Adaptec or LSI controllers. Yep, yep, I know. But I am playing with the experimental graphite cluster that's ZFS-based. And my goal is to reduce a almost 60-node graphite cluster down to about 15 or 20, which saves me a chunk of cash. And ZFS has this magical thing called LZ4 compression. And uh, metric data is float values in a stream, and a lot of them don't have a wide variance between the uh, timestamp before and the timestamp after. So sometimes the data changes frequently, sometimes the data doesn't change frequently. And it turns out, uh, Whisper data is really easily compressible. So that's still in my experimental phases, but that's looking really, really fantastic. Um, at home, uh, I have one machine that does ZFS. I have one machine that does BTRFS. I was definitely into 
BTRFS before Xenial just made it easy. And I definitely want to support the Linux side of of stuff uh, rather than the third-party taint-your-kernel uh, ZFS. But ZFS just seems to win in more places where it's really important. BTRFS has some neat features, but BTRFS still has some some warning signs from me. So I'm I've definitely considered converting my BTRFS machines to ZFS. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on our website, operations.fm. Send us your thoughts in an email, feedback at operations.fm, or use operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 34th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.